This is the moment Me Too begins for me. It's October 2017. I'm sitting at a desk by the window in an office block in Sydney, working with the ABC's national reporting team. The New Yorker has just published an article. The headline reads, From aggressive overtures to sexual assault, Harvey Weinstein's accusers tell their stories. A few paragraphs down, some audio is embedded in the piece. I hit play. I'm telling you right now. What do we have to do here? Nothing. I'm going to take a shower. You sit there and have a drink. Water. Don't drink. Can I stay on the bar? It's a covert recording made by the Filipina Italian model Amber Gutierrez. No, yesterday was a kind of aggressive for me. I need to know a person. I won't do a thing. Please, I swear I won't. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. You can hear Amber as she tries to refuse Harvey Weinstein's advances, and she's trying to get him to admit to groping her the last time they met. Why yesterday you touch my breast? Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. Are you used to that? Yes, come in. As Weinstein continues to try and coerce her into coming to his hotel room, Amber's evasions and replies become more desperate. Sit here for a minute, please. No, I don't want to. If you do this now, you will embarrass me. No. Listening to this tape for the first time, the feeling I have is this is so familiar. I recognise it at a bone-deep level. How many times have I heard something like this? How many times have I been spoken to in that tone, felt myself being shepherded into a situation I don't really want to be in by a man who has no concern for my agency? The difference now is that this behaviour is making international news. It's kick-starting a movement. Now to the latest on Harvey Weinstein. The New York New developments in the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Another actress has come forward. His alleged victims over nearly three decades. The growing Me Too movement. Hundreds marching down Hollywood Boulevard on Sunday. Sending a message days after... But in Australia, that movement, the Me Too movement, would only last a matter of days. In fact, it would only last five days. From Schwartz Media and 7am, I'm Ruby Jones, and this is episode two of Everybody Knows. In this series, I'm trying to work out what happened to Me Too in Australia, why it stalled, why it failed. And in this episode, I'm going back to the beginning, back to 2017, when Australia's best journalists broke stories that brought down powerful men. I need to know why Me Too started so suddenly and then stopped. And that's because I'm trying to tell a Me Too story right now in the Australian music industry. There's still so many stories spanning decades that haven't been shared yet. So I do hope more people continue to come forward. I want to know if there are lessons from the first wave of Me Too reporting. I want to know what to avoid if I'm trying to tell a Me Too story. This is episode two of Everybody Knows. Five days in November. 
And a warning, this episode contains descriptions of sexual harassment. One week after that New Yorker piece on Harvey Weinstein is published, Tracy Spicer, an Australian journalist, public speaker and advocate, tweets that she's investigating two long-term offenders in our media industry. Please contact me privately to tell your stories. The Me Too hashtag has changed everything. It gives women a support base and information with which they can speak out and tell their stories. So clearly you're still investigating it. Tracy's tweet takes off. Women respond. Initially, there are 30 or 40 alleged offenders. Spicer says up to 2,000 women contacted her by the end. We've got a list of about 30 to 40 offenders so far, but we're going to target the top two or three. One of them in particular has been offending for about 40 years, to the point where... Tracy collates a list of names from the messages she's receiving, a dossier of alleged perpetrators, people who she thinks need to be investigated for harassment and abuse. And she brings that list to the Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC. A team of journalists is formed and they start investigating. Maybe could you just start by introducing yourself? I don't know if we'll need it, but... My name is Kate McClymont and I am an investigative journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. At the Herald, the lead reporter is Kate McClymont. Kate is best known for her exposés on crime and corruption in Sydney's political and criminal elite... We sit down together in a Sydney studio. Has it been freezing down there? It's so cold, Kate. It's awful. It's awful. (laughs) She's got a grey bob and her presence is one part intimidating, two parts welcoming. I'm wondering if you could start by telling me a little bit about what it was like reporting on sexual harassment at all in the early stages of your career. When I first started off, sexual harassment was one of those things that... I think society didn't treat seriously, or if they did, it was too hard to prove. But the Harvey Weinstein story changes things. Look, it was only because of Harvey Weinstein. It was only because the rise and prominence of the Me Too movement gave women the feeling that I can now tell my story. Now is my time And if I tell it, I will be believed. Kate sits down with the dossier of names that Tracy Spicer has compiled and... The first cab off the rank was Don Burke, who was a household name for Burke's Backyard. He was a very prominent uh, TV personality. If you grew up in Australia in the 90s, like I did, then you grew up with Don Burke. How do you like things Greek style? If you do, this garden coming up is really going to appeal to you. It was created Back then, his show, Burke's Backyard, is wildly popular. Now, if you want to put into practice anything you've learnt on tonight's program, it's not a bad idea to write in for a fact sheet. I mean, after all, they are free. It wins six TV Week Logie Awards. It's beloved by families across the country. John Burke can do no wrong. But even before Me Too, before Kate McClymont's investigation, there are whispers about Don Burke, if you're paying attention. 
1991, a profile piece appears in the Good Weekend magazine by journalist Richard Glover. When you read the go back and read his story, alarm bells were tingling. Kate's not wrong. Glover's very first sentence reads, obsessive, perfectionist, arrogant, self-reliant, conceited, brilliant, egotistical. And I remember talking to him at the time saying, the stories I've heard about him are hair-raising, but the lawyers just said, no, you, you can't go there. To be clear, Glover's piece doesn't allege sexual harassment, but after reading it, you're left with no doubt that people in the industry know what Don Burke is really like. And this is something that I've been coming across time and time again in my own reporting. In the music industry, everybody knows who the perpetrators are. The same names come up again and again. Everybody knows, and everybody knew about Don Burke. Kate McClymont confirms that. And it was interesting talking to people who said they had gone to Channel 9, they had made their complaints, and that the Channel 9 bosses had basically said, Don Burke is a star. And by that, that meant he was worth money. He was commercially successful to the television station. So they were happy to put profits above people. These men, their downfall usually only comes when the company or the institution they're a part of turns on them too. And as Kate McClymont tells me, that's exactly what happens with Don Burke. Channel 9 executives, including former CEOs David Leckie and Sam Chisholm, finally speak out against him. Getting David Leckie and Sam Chisholm on the record was really important because both of them acknowledged that, yes, it had been a problem and that, yes, they had been aware that it was a problem. And they both offered apologies of sorts for the behaviour. With the former heads of the network on the record and with the team having spoken to more than 50 women who've come forward, Kate is ready to publish. You're anxious, you feel like vomiting. Have you done everything? Is everything fine? Her story with the headline a high-grade, twisted abuser, goes live on the 26th of November. That date, the publication of the first Me Too story in Australia, can be considered day one, the beginning of Australia's short-lived Me Too moment. So when the story went up online, I think about midnight, my phone started going off like I have never experience before. Like the story just dropped like a massive bombshell. Welcome to the program. We've watched influential American men... The next evening, day two, the ABC's current affairs program, 7.30, airs its story. It has multiple women going on the record about Burke's behaviour. One of those is Louise Langdon. She worked for Burke as a researcher back in the 80s. One morning... At the radio station, he encouraged me uh, to look at this video, a woman having sex with a male donkey. And I just was just speechless. What do you do when your boss is showing you this thing? Don Burke would go on to deny the allegations, but the floodgates are open. Tracy Spicer joins us. Tracy, welcome to RM Breakfast. Good morning, Fran. Tracy Spicer appears on ABC Radio on the morning of the 28th of November. 
day three of Me Too. And at this point, the Don Burke story is all anyone can talk about. The questions are swirling. Did you know? Have you heard? Everybody knew. I mean, everybody knew. And the most... And who is next? Will you be publishing allegations involving other high-profile men in the media? Yes, we will continue this investigation for some years because of the weight of evidence and the number of people. After the break, the moment the Me Too story stopped and the story I'm trying to tell about Sony Music in Australia. So I think that we should draw up an organisational chart for Sony. Yeah. I'm in the office with my producer, Ruby. We're mapping out what we know about the music label Sony, who's worked there and when. I've got some notes to go from, um, but I think we start at the top. Yeah. And work our way down. Um, and we can have a section for former and current. Yeah. I reckon let's start with, like, the layer of senior execs Mm -hmm. under the CEO. And then we look at the layer under that and under that. Yeah. Um, And I think we should just, as we go, if there's someone that we've heard anything about, let's just put, like, a star next to their name for now. As we go, we're tallying up the stories we're hearing, working out who and how many people who've worked at the company over the years might have accusations against them and what we might need before we could publish those allegations. I don't know if you think about the how many women we've spoken to and how many women have specific stories about specific men, you have to kind of start to ask yourself, how many women does it take, right? I mean, how many does it take? It was more than 50 women for Domberg. Like, how many women is it for us? I have other questions too. The people that I'm hearing about, they're not household names. They aren't famous. They're managers and executives, not TV stars. So will people even care? In Australia, Me Too stories have almost all been about well-known names. This is one of the structural problems with the movement. And there are other structural issues too. There's now a queue of women with Me Too stories who've sent their disclosures to Tracy Spicer. And that means, whether she intended it or not, she's become the gatekeeper of Me Too in Australia. And it's the media who's deciding whose stories get told. When I sent the email, I'd obviously worked myself up to it. This is Danya Mani. She was one of the women who wrote to Tracy Spicer. Can you tell me about that process of reaching out to her and, and what you said? Yeah, so, I mean, she had provided an email address, like, across, you know, social media and other platforms, um, which was her Fairfax uh, email address and... Um, you know, taken together with her sort of tweets and posts on social media saying that people should come forward with their disclosures. That is, you know, the email address that I decided to reach out to. Um, And let me just check my phone to sort of see when that would have been. Hold on. Before Me Too began, Danya had been working as a political staffer and had been keeping her allegation of sexual assault at the hands of a colleague secret. Huh, finally. Okay, I found it. Amazing. Thank you. (laughs) 
The subject line reads, Confidential Advice, Re-Workplace Discrimination. Dear Tracy, I've experienced discrimination in the workplace and it has had a substantial impact on me, my career advancement and wellbeing. In the email, Danya writes that she doesn't want to be silenced, but she's worried about the repercussions if she speaks. She asks for confidential advice. Thanks very much for providing your contact details and for encouraging women to speak out. And so what happened after you sent that email? Um, I wish I could say anything, um, but absolutely nothing. When Danya doesn't hear back, she doesn't know why. But she takes it to mean that her story just isn't important enough. I internalised it um, as a sign that my story just didn't matter and wasn't important at all because it didn't even warrant a reply. It was just a really hopeless experience, I think, um, because I just didn't think I was worthy of help. So what does it mean if people, right from the very outset, feel left out of a movement that is supposed to be for them? Because that's what starts to happen. In the same way that Me Too was co-opted without recognition of its original founder, black woman Tarana Burke, Me Too in Australia only highlights the names of certain women and leaves many others out. Women whose harassers aren't famous. Aboriginal women, women of colour. The media repeatedly profiles um, white women with similar backgrounds in the same way surely should kind of be a sign that something isn't quite right. Uh, And yet it doesn't really even seem that there's any questioning around that. Dunya's right. That isn't a question the media is really thinking about in 2017. Back then, the first Me Too story is done and the whole media industry is racing to publish the next one. And the focus is squarely on A-list names. On day four of Me Too, that's what the reporting team at the Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC are focused on. The next story. They're speaking to women, they're collating evidence. But they're not the only ones. Other media outlets are also trying to write Me Too stories. The whole industry is competing for the next scoop. And the very next day, it breaks. More shocks in the tsunami of sexual harassment and assault allegations involving heavyweights in the entertainment industry. Most people who've woken up this morning have heard these allegations against Oscar-winning Australian actor Geoffrey Rush. And now Academy Award winner Geoffrey Rush, who's been accused of inappropriate behaviour, a claim he vigorously denies. Day five, Geoffrey Rush. On the 30th of November, there's a photo of Oscar-winning actor Geoffrey Rush on the front page of News Corp's Daily Telegraph. He's in costume as King Lear in a recent production at the Sydney Theatre Company. His expression is pained and he looks right at the camera. The headline reads King Lear, spelt L-E-E-R. Sydney Morning Herald journalist Kate McClymont remembers that front page vividly. I thought the the front page treatment for a tabloid was genius, you know, King Lear. The accompanying article goes on to claim that, quote, Oscar winner Rush denies inappropriate behaviour during Sydney stage show. But when I read the story, I thought, oh, 
gee, this is interesting. I'm not sure you've done quite enough work. I sort of wondered whether they'd got the headline. This story, it's not like the Don Burke story. The paper doesn't have any women on the record. There aren't many details about the complaint that they're saying has been made about Geoffrey Rush. And the person who allegedly made the complaint isn't in the article. And I just also wondered whether because the Herald and the ABC had done the Don Burke story and it had been widely acclaimed and the fallout had been absolutely immense, whether they wanted sort of, I don't know whether to say a slice of the action. It's extraordinary to think now, but there really were only five days between the Don Burke story in The Herald and the Geoffrey Rush story in The Telegraph, because the day The Telegraph published that headline, to me it marks the end of the clear air for Me Too in Australia. And it marks the beginning of the end of Me Too reporting. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. I will not be responding to any questions. And here is where the movement comes undone. Geoffrey Rush announces his suing for defamation. Today I have filed defamation proceedings against the Daily Telegraph in the Federal Court of Australia. It is an action I am taking in order to redress the slurs, innuendo and hyperbole that they have created around my standing in the entertainment industry and in the greater community. Things are unravelling. Rush says that the Daily Telegraph had made false, pejorative and demeaning claims on its front page that created irreparable damage to his reputation. The situation is intolerable. And I must now seek vindication of my good name through the courts. This is where everything collides. It's where failures in the media meet Australia's notoriously hardline defamation law, and where the focus on A listers compromises the movement for everyone. When I look at the Rush case, what I really see is the beginning of a wave of Me Too-related legal action. Rush was the first, but his case, it really sets the pace. A few weeks after, there's another piece in the Daily Telegraph about another actor, John Jarrett, saying he's being investigated by police over a historical rape allegation. He denies the allegation and he sues. The actor's lawyer, Chris Murphy, today tweeted his client was taking on nationwide news after a jury on Friday found Mr Jarrett not guilty of sexually assaulting his housemate in 1976. And then, not long after that, the ABC and The Herald publish another story about a third actor, Craig McLaughlin. And the same thing happens. He denies and sues. Now, we have obtained a copy of Craig McLaughlin's statement of claim that was lodged here in the Supreme Court this afternoon. In it, he uh, it names both of those organisations, but it principally targets his former co-star, Christy Whelan-Brown. Now, in here, his lawyers respond to accusations made against Craig McLaughlin... That defamation action is still underway. In a related criminal case, he was found not guilty of assault and indecent assault. Geoffrey Rush ends up winning his case against the Daily Telegraph. The damages he's awarded, $2.9 million, they're the highest paid in Australia to this day. The Geoffrey Rush defamation action put an absolute 
absolute hold on stories coming up because I think people thought, oh, it's all going so smoothly. Um, you know, we can say that these things happened. But it's, yeah, it, it's a, a chilling effect when there was such a prominent defamation action and that Jeffrey Rush walked away with a lot of money. A matter of weeks after that Geoffrey Rush story, the Me Too reporting team, which included the ABC, the Sydney Morning Herald and Tracy Spicer, disbands. And so the work that you were doing with the ABC and, and Tracy Spicer, did that end? When did that end? Was it around that time? Look, it, it did end around that time. I think everything sort of went on hold. So I think after the Geoffrey Rush case and then, of course, um, Craig McLaughlin instituted legal action against the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the ABC. And I think having done two major stories, I think people just thought, look, we actually just need to take a break from this, get on to all the other stories that are queuing up about you know, crime and corruption and the other things that happen in society. It had started so strongly. A tweet, a dossier of names, a list of stories to be worked through, the embers of a movement. But it was also short-lived, which begs the question, what happened to the others? The other women, like Danya, who wanted to tell their stories? I think it just has created a substantial concern within me that there'll be a lot of women who just won't make another complaint, who'll carry with them that something is wrong with them, that... They didn't deserve to get help. And the men, the ones whose names were on that Tracy Spicer dossier. And in a situation like that, I mean, what happens to the kind of the list of names, I suppose? They're still there. The names are still there. But the moment passed. In Australia, it lasted just five days. As I've been trying to work out what happened to Me Too in Australia, I've been trying to understand what went wrong, both in the reporting process, but also the legal context. What role does defamation law play in all of this? What do I need to know about that to help my own reporting right now as I look into Sony Music in Australia? At this point, I know so many stories, but People who've worked at Sony, people like Tamara, who I spoke to in episode one, they're worried about legal action. Sounds like you don't want to name them. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I don't want to get sued for defamation. Tamara's not the only one scared of being sued. Women keep raising this with me. I'm aware of five women who've had experiences of bullying or misconduct with one man, a a different man, at Sony. Three of those women have made formal complaints about this man as part of Sony's ongoing internal investigation. Two of those women have agreed to do interviews with me, as long as they're kept anonymous. So what is the law on this? What do I need to be able to publish the next stage of the Sony investigation? The choice to name or not name alleged perpetrators, it's really not made by journalists alone anymore. It's made by lawyers. In the Geoffrey Rush case, you could hardly dignify the articles there with the name journalism 
they were, that was just tabloid trash at its worst. There is a reason why women who have faced these kinds of cases talk about it as, in some ways, a continuation of the abuse. Because the legal system itself was being used as a tool for abuse. Yes. With this type of um, stories, to prepare the story like you're preparing for court, you've got to, you know, you've got to assume you're going to be sued and you've got to prepare for war. That's next week on Everybody Knows. Everybody Knows is brought to you by 7am and Schwartz Media. The show is produced by Ruby Schwartz. Osman Faruqi and Claire Rawlinson are the executive producers, with special thanks to Madison Knorton. Eric Jensen is editor-in-chief. Mixing and sound design by Atticus Basto. Our theme music is an original composition by Rainbow Chan. Additional reporting in this series by Ruby Schwartz. Episode 3 of Everybody Knows will be in your feed next Wednesday, September 8. Make sure you're following Everybody Knows in your favourite podcast app. And if you want to get in touch, you can contact me over email. Everybody Knows Podcast at protonmail.com. I'm Ruby Jones. Thanks for listening.